everyone. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Nick Pelletier. I'm an ultra-endurance athlete and adventurer based out of Canada. Um, I recently just had a Liz Frank fracture in my foot, and I thought it would be a good idea to try and create something while I was coming back from injury, and I would like to talk to athletes, adventurers, and my friends about their challenges, stories, and everything of that such. So on the first episode of Comfort, Breeze, Complacency, we have Amanda Rumry, my uh, good friend and fellow athlete. Thanks for coming, Amanda. Of course, Nick. I'm so excited to be your first ever guest yeah. on your new podcast. This is exciting. Mm-hmm. I think last time I saw you, you were in Kelowna, and uh, we did a road race on the road. We were heading to the beach one night with our friends, and uh, some crackhead came running out of the yeah, he out did. of the parking lot, tackled me. Yeah. I think he thought that uh, you I stole, stole something, something from, from him. Yeah. yeah. So that yeah, was the last time I saw you. So yeah, and you also I don't know. It's probably two hundred meter, maybe three hundred meter race, and you had a. 80 meter lead on me, but mm, I don't know about that. I don't think you're trying. <laughs> I was in Birkenstock. So yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I just want to have you on. I know you have an unreal story and, uh, I was hoping that you'd share it with us. So do you want to just kind of explain, um, I don't know your whole story from start to where you are now. Kinda? Yeah, absolutely. So like Nick said, my name is Amanda, Amanda Rummery. I am from Edmonton, Alberta and, I was born in Kenora, Ontario, but lived most of my life out here in Edmonton. And yeah, I do have definitely an interesting story. For the first 18 years of my life, I lived a very, very average life. And then on July 25th, uh, back in 2015, so seven years ago now, I was ATVing with some friends and I lost control of the ATV. And I was... Absolutely never an adrenaline junkie before this, Um, so I didn't know how to properly drive an ATV, and I collided with a tree, and when I flew off of the tree, what we think happened, of course, I was knocked unconscious, and I don't remember any of it, but I was gripping on really hard to the handlebar with my dominant left hand, and I suffered a spinal cord injury, and it's called brachial plexus, so I had severed all of the nerves off of my spinal cord that are responsible for all movement and sensation shoulder down. And I look back on that accident and my, the first thing I did was tell my friend who was in the accident with me, Allie, who Nick also knows. Um, and I said, Oh, I broke my arm. I can't feel or move my arm because up until that point in my life, I had literally never even broken a bone. I've had never had an injury of any sort. So I didn't know what I was in for. And I got airlifted to the Ontario hospital. And then I spent some time in the Winnipeg hospital because I was in critical condition. I had a lot of other injuries in addition to my arm. And this whole time though, um, at this point, it's been a couple weeks and they told me that I did have a brachial plexus injury, but that I was going to move my arm again and it was going to be fine. They were going to do a surgery on me and my arm would be fine in a matter of weeks. Um, If not like one or two months, my arm would be back to normal. So I did my first surgery and a year later it was determined that that surgery was unsuccessful and it was a big nerve and muscle transfer. So then they um, 
did a second surgery. It was kind of the same thing, took different nerves and muscles from other body parts. Once again, a year later, that surgery was unsuccessful. So at this point, I'd been carrying around a dead paralyzed arm for three years. And my surgeons would have kept cutting me open until the cows came home. They had eight more surgeries lined up for me. And I knew without a doubt in my mind that I needed to amputate. My arm held me back in so many ways. I was living every day in a sling. This sling acted as a reminder of my accident. I couldn't move on from my accident. It was also this invitation for people in my community to constantly ask me about my arm. So if I was filling up my gas tank or getting groceries, people thought that I had a broken scapula or a collarbone. And I found that I was telling my story to these strangers five to 10 times a day. And it was really hard on me. So I begged and I pleaded. I had to get down on my hands and my knees. And they finally let me amputate. And it was the best thing I ever did, advocating for myself. I was only 21 years old. And A lot of people thought that I was giving up because I was amputating. They wanted me to keep trying. They wanted me to do these other surgeries that my surgeons had planned. But I am a massive believer in the fact that absolutely nobody knows what you are going through besides yourself. And even the man next to me with the exact same injury with brachial plexus who decides to keep his arm that's paralyzed for the rest of his life, that's his own choice. And good on him, but I needed to move on. And I am so happy that I did on my own terms when I was ready. And I love going through life with my nub and I rock it. I'm super confident about it. And I love that when people look at me, they see my nub and it's the first thing they notice about me. And I am really happy that this is where I've ended up. Yeah, that's a pretty crazy just going your whole life with it and then it being gone. What was that like? Because I know it went in two stages, right? You got half. Yes. Yeah, that was the other thing. Um, They wouldn't let me amputate as high up as I'd wanted because they were convinced that I would want to wear a prosthetic. Mm. And the only way that they were going to amputate on me was if they amputated at the elbow because amputating at the elbow it would be easier for them to attach a prosthetic. And I told them I wouldn't wear one, a prosthetic, but they were convinced. So I amputated in August of 2018 at the elbow and it was good, but it wasn't perfect. And then September of 2020, I took off another eight inches. So now my amputation is right below my shoulder and it's perfect. It doesn't get in the way. I can still wear a backpack. That was a big thing functionally. I still wanted to wear a backpack and it's, yeah, it's at the perfect length now. Yeah. So do, when that first happened, is that like, what's it like leaving the hospital, like seeing that you had that and then it's all of a sudden it's gone? Is it? Yeah. If for the people listening who have ever watched um, Soul Surfer, it's Bethany Hamilton in the movie. It's this big moment when she touches her, nub for the first time when she touches the incision site and 
for me, it was just completely normal. Like I didn't even give it a second thought Mm. because I was so detached from my arm and I was so ready to move on. I I did make sure that my arm got like donated to research because I thought that that was unsettling. Yeah. I was going to wonder what they do. Yeah. Did you get to see it off your body? I didn't. I could have. I could have. Probably. Yeah. But I didn't want me to be living and walking around and then having my arm like decomposing in a dumpster was Mm. really unsettling. So yeah, I did go to research and that was great, but yeah, I just, it was the most freeing thing in the world, not having to wear a sling at nighttime. I'd even have to sleep in a splint and a sling because there was risk that you could roll over in the middle of the night and hurt yourself, break a finger. Um, and not even feel it. Yeah. There's this, you, you really don't realize it until you're in the moment, but sensation is so, so important. Once I was getting something out of the oven and my hand was resting on the inside of a glass Mm. and I suffered really, really bad burns on my hand. And it wasn't until my mom who was with me smelled burning flesh that we like knew. So the, I always was in fear that something was going to happen. I was always on edge that something was going to happen to my paralyzed arm. So yeah, it was uh, definitely freeing when I was able to wake up from the surgery. And also, I mean, there was really no transition for me because I had already been living three years of my life Mm. with one arm. So cooking, cleaning, doing my hair, getting dressed, um, going about your daily activities, all of that was definitely challenging back in July, 2015, that whole first year or two. But at this point, three years post-accident, I already had adjusted to this new life and adapted. So it was, it was fine. It was easy. I remember uh, right before you got it amputated, you had like an amputation party, which is one thing I've always been like, you've always been since I met you, like super positive, like regardless of what's happened to you and everything like that. But I remember even just that day, dominant arm being like taped to your body. It was like, yes, holy, yeah, trying Nick, to think the, about that. For... The party Nick's talking about, I made everybody who showed up um, wrap their dominant arm in duct tape to their body. And I don't think a single person made it to the end of the night without cheating because yeah. they couldn't even do up your pants after going to the washroom. So. Yeah, or anything. Yeah, yeah it's yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, I, I like doing things in my own style and the amputation party was definitely a way to celebrate and because it was me deciding my own fate Mm. on my terms when I was ready. And I was really um, proud of that because I think nowadays um, sometimes in the medical world or we just have so much influence from people around us. We have such big circles of friends and family that you can really let them control your life. And it's important that you stay true to your values and what you want because like I said before, you really don't, nobody knows what you're going through besides yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Um, I also, I've heard some that's like ghost pain or something. Do you, what is that? Can you yeah, explain that? Did that you ever have that? That is phantom limb pain. Phantom. Yeah. That's it. And it's when your nerves are firing for a limb that you no longer have. And I had it very badly when the accident first happened and it was the worst excruciating pain I've ever experienced. It feels like your arm or whatever limb it may be is on fire while also getting stabbed. That's how people describe it. So this is while you still had your arm. Yeah. Um, and that was also why they were 
concerned about amputating because they were worried I was going to get phantom limb pain. So you can get that after it's gone too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. You can get it in like definitely different scenarios. Sometimes people get it in limbs that still work, but just have really bad nerve damage that's Mm -hmm. happened. Um, So I had it after my accident when I still had my arm really for only about like four to six months, but it was bad. Like I would crawl into a ball and just cry. It was awful. And then it just slowly started going away and becoming less and less frequent. And then I amputated and it was still fine. Nowadays I get it probably once every two days for about five seconds, which some people have it chronically constant. It's absolutely terrible. And they're really heavily medicated for it, but there really is like no cure for it. And the reason I don't think I have it is because I'm a strong believer in the fact that you're never given more than you can handle. And I am known by my friends and those who know me that I'm very positive and upbeat and I have this like high energy about me all the time, but I don't think that I would be like that if I was heavily medicated. So I could handle the fact that I had the most severe brachial plexus injury there is. My arm never came back. I was constantly given false hope by my medical team. They always told me I was going to get my arm back. It never came back. I had to amputate. I was able to handle all of that and like thrive, but being in chronic pain, I don't think I would be who I am today. Yeah. I think that's like super important when you look at adversity and like there's that saying, the hardest thing that's ever happened to you is the hardest thing that's ever happened to you. So like somebody that whatever it may be, like can't really compare to what you've had. There's very few people who've had what you've had, right? Yeah. So do you think having gone through that, your like level of adversity is so much higher that anything below that you can like seem to roll the punches easier or like I know like it seems like a lot of people would have what happened to you and they'd like feel bad for themselves and like try and instead of moving on and accepting what it is and yeah absolutely yeah I do think that it's definitely helped me be able to face different life's challenges and difficult experiences um I would say that I was a pretty resilient person before the accident. And I don't know what to accredit that to. I don't know if it was just how I was raised. I definitely was given tough love growing up. Um, Nobody, I was always taught, nobody ever feels sorry for you. You got to make your way in this world and you got to work hard. And I think that definitely helped. But I would say that my resiliency definitely helped in my ability to adapt to this new way of living with one arm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think uh, some things when I'm going through some ultra stuff is like it seems like when you're in the moment, um, doesn't matter what it is. If you're trying to get to the goal, whatever's happened to you is happening. So if you can like accept and make peace of your current situation, then you'll find the ability to like identify gratitude and whatever it is you're doing, like finding the little things to be grateful for. Totally. And then once you can do that, I feel like you can do that throughout life. You supply the same practices that you use in ultra or sports or whatever to yeah. life. So like that's super cool to see how much adversity you've been through and that you can uh keep rolling with it. Yeah, absolutely. Um yeah. So I was wondering, do you also have like certain tools that you use to combat um like if you're going through tough times or um like did you use any meditation, anything like that to get through um 
anything like your arm or stuff yeah, like that? I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, my arm happened, my accident happened back in 2015. And we hear so much now in social media about self-care mm-hmm. and yeah, meditating, journaling, um, all these things about putting yourself first. But I, that wasn't really big back mm-hmm. in 2015, to be honest. And I didn't um, do any of those self um, help practices, but I did uh, talk to a psychologist and I gave it a shot, but uh, she wasn't right for me. She wasn't a great fit. So I, I went through a lot of it like alone, but I was, I was okay with that because with my accident happening and then my doctors telling me that I was going to get my arm back, I always thought that I was going to get my arm back and it was, False hope, kind of. Yeah, but going through it at the time, I'm like, okay, well, I can get through this surgery. I can be, I can go through this recovery. I'll stay committed to my physiotherapy and my occupational therapy and my recovery because I'm getting my arm back. And then I'd find out that the surgery didn't work, but the next surgery will work. So I was constantly given this false hope, but in this twisted way, it kind of helped me because I never thought that my arm and my situation was as bad as it was. Mm -hmm. And then three years post-accident when I did decide to amputate, I had come to terms with it, but I kind of had this three-year timeline to wrap my head around it all and to grasp what was going on instead of, I think it would have been a lot different if I, say, lost my arm that day mm. in my accident. Maybe I, I mean, and it would have been easier in some ways, right? Not going through all of those surgeries and not spending endless hours of recovery and all this, but it, it was, it was an interesting journey. Yeah. Those three years, but I, yeah, for what I was able to do to always like combat what I was going through was, I don't know. It was just kind of inherent in my personality to be resilient. Yeah. Do you uh, remember a certain moment where you like decided on you were going to amputate? Or did it just kind of build slowly over time? Yeah, it, I would say it build it built slowly over time. Um, I had decided before I found out that my last surgery, when I I had already decided to amputate before I found out that my surgery was unsuccessful. So I remember distinctly when they told me that it was bittersweet. But I was I had already accepted that it didn't work. I I kind of knew that before mm. they did all that nerve testing and told me. So. I, I was ready and yeah, I definitely gave it a lot of thought and a lot of my family and friends didn't want me to do it, but I, I knew that I had to. Yeah. That's awesome. So, uh, moving forward a bit, I guess, did you, were you in sports before your accident? I was not, I played very, very recreational basketball but I wasn't good I got cut for my junior basketball team in grade 11 I thought I was a lot better than that but I clearly wasn't and that was about it like my family we didn't have a ton of money growing up so there's no like dance or cheerleading or figure skating these expensive sports so I did a little bit of soccer and a little bit of basketball but then after losing my arm I I still don't even know why my head went to let's become a professional athlete. Let's go to the Paralympics one day. I think partly as the public correlates 
Paralympics with amputees and people in wheelchairs. So I thought as an amputee, that was something in the cards for me. And most of us have done track and field in our junior high days. I mean, the last time before my accident that I had run was like grade nine um, recreational track and field day at the end of the school year, where I probably got like bronze out of 10 girls. So I mean, yeah, I definitely didn't, I wouldn't say that I had this natural athletic skill inside of me. Um, I know you went to the RBC Olympics, right? Uh, yeah, well, there's RBC training ground. Oh, training ground. So I didn't go to RBC training ground. That one is only for able-bodied athletes, but I am sponsored through the RBC program. All right. Yeah. So they've definitely helped fuel my journey financially. Um, I do presentations on their behalf. Um, but I have an amazing team of sponsors behind me who have, I mean, I have a great story. I am outgoing, so I'm good at meeting people and telling people my story and connecting with people, especially local businesses. And yeah, RBC, Save on Foods, grocery store, they're a great one. Bell, um, CLE Athletics. Yeah, so I have a lot of people who support me so that I can now train full-time. Okay, so what was what did you, was it like getting into sport? Like how did you choose your events? How did you choose or like who did you go to to get coaching or where did you start at? Yeah, so I, I, it was pretty much just a Google search after my accident, after I had recovered from my other injuries and I started to feel more like myself because the first year after the accident definitely hit some lows. I just didn't have good energy. I wasn't eating well. And once I started feeling more like myself, I looked up through the Paralympics, what sports were available to individuals with arm impairments. And there was really only a few. It was swimming, cycling, and running, I believe. Um, Maybe there's a few others out there. And I thought that trying track would be the best option just because I was decent at it when I was younger. And then I did some more research and I found a club that was out of the University of Alberta at the Stedward Center. And the Stedward Center is a non-for-profit organization for people with mental and physical impairments to be physically active. So I joined uh, with my coach, Megan, and that was September of 2017. So it was two years post-accident. And I was doing it recreationally for sure. Like at this point, I'm six months in, I'm training twice a week, maybe I'm, I'm enjoying it, but I'm not taking it super seriously. And then it was in the spring that I was watching the NFL combine with my dad and a gentleman comes up on the screen and his name is Shaquem Griffin and for the Seahawks, right? He played. Yeah. 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 So he went out and he ran a six, uh, what was it, 40-yard dash or 60-yard dash? He, he went out and ran, and it was the fastest time in linebacker combine history. And truly, I didn't know that he had a disability. I thought he was an average football player. He's big and he's strong. And then at the end, when they tell him his time and they tell him he just broke this record, he's waving to his mom and he's wishing her happy birthday, and he is missing his left hand. And I literally just thought it was the most incredible thing in the world because 
I have a disability and I'm involved in sports with other people with disabilities, but he is at this major, major physical disadvantage. And he's in one of the most competitive sports in the world in a sport that primarily uses your hands. I mean, it's not even, he's not even in soccer where you use your feet. Like he is in a sport where you catch and you throw and you tackle and you play defense all with your hands. So he definitely sparked something in me. And then I just started being more serious and more committed to track. And I remember my coach sitting me down and she said, if you're willing and you want to make it to the Paralympics, I want to coach you to get you there. And that's when we just started training five times a week, two to three hours a day, um, which is kind of the max you can train for in track. It's not like other sports where, I don't know, swimmers, right? You can swim for hours and hours in the pool and just do tons of kilometers, both sprinting, it's all about quality over quantity. It's all about technique. So I'm not going to go out there and run 4,100 meters Mm -hmm. um, because I'm going to go out there and run 6,100s and have rest. So yeah, started taking it more seriously. And that was in, yeah, spring of 2018. And then it was one year later where I made my first Team Canada. It was my international debut. It was at the Pan American Games. And I raced in Peru and I ran back-to-back personal bests in the 400 meter. So that was one of your questions, what my main event is. So it was at that point that I decided to commit myself to the 400. It's for those that aren't super into track on the outdoor track. It is one big, long lap um, and it's a full out sprint still as soon as you go longer than 400 meters, you get some pacing in there, but 400 complete sprint and your body also isn't meant to sprint for that long. So you hit a big, massive lactic wall, but I love it because you feel that much more accomplished when you cross the finish line. Like the 100 to me, isn't that fun. The 400 is where all the fun is. Do you feel like that's your most competitive is 400? Do you, like, have you tried 100 or 200? Yeah, 100 I'm really not competitive in. Um, it's so technical with this block starts. And so in the Paralympics, you compete against people who have similar disabilities to yourself. So as an arm amputee, I would never verse someone who's blind or who has cerebral palsy or a leg amputee. So I verse other individuals with arm impairments and... Within that category, there is so much variability. So I would be considered the most disabled. I have a shoulder down impairment. And then there's people who are missing a hand. So they still get that full momentum from their shoulder and their elbow and their arm. There's people who have slight limited range of motion. So they can't do full shoulder rotation, but they still have their full arm there in my class. Uh, There's people who have an elbow amputation, but then still wear a full prosthetic arm. So I don't wear a prosthetic. I just compete with my nub. And yeah, I feel like it's tougher for me doing block starts um, for the 100 meters. So I'm decently competitive in the two. Um, The two is really fun as well, but I'm most competitive in the four. So I right now I'm running, I just... Ran a personal best in July uh, during my outdoor season, and I ran 59.13 seconds. Oh, and yeah, that was my third time going sub 60, so under 60 seconds. And 
that right now for 2022, I'm ranked third in the world. Nice. Yeah. When, uh, when you first started, was it hard to get used to like the momentum difference or like, was, how was that getting used to that? Cause if you had ran before, uh, your injury, like, was it, did it take a while to get used to or a period of time or? Yeah. I think it was almost easier because I didn't run before really. Mm. So sure. I went for the occasional jog before mm-hmm. losing my arm, but I, I never competitively did track and field, did sprinting with two arms. So all I've ever known was sprinting with one arm. So block starts. I had never tried blocks before. So doing them with one arm was definitely challenging, but it was easy or because I didn't have something to compare it to. Um, block starts, the momentum while running. I mean, when I'm coming home on the home stretch of a 400 meter and I hit this lactic wall and my limbs are just burning and I taste blood and I see stars. The one area that isn't hurting or hurting the least would be my arms. So that's when they say to go into overdrive with your arms and just pump your arms and as big and fast as you can. And I don't have that. So sometimes that's tough, but I think my biggest hurdle is in the gym lifting weights, doing cleans, deadlifts, front squat, back squat, all of these exercises that definitely are important and give you that competitive advantage Mm -hmm. with your competitors. I mean, the gym is a huge, huge part of training for track and field. So I have seen my competitors strap on a prosthetic arm and do all these exercises that I have tried to do forever and will never be able to do. And that's just something that I've had to deal with. And I have great coaches who are excited with the challenge that I bring in the gym and finding out different way to do exercises, but to target the same muscles. And I used to not enjoy the gym, but now I'm really enjoying it. And I am excited to just keep getting stronger because that's, what's going to make me a faster runner out there. Yeah, it must be good. Like even with your personality, I'm sure trying to find those solutions, those problems and challenging, finding the new ways to do things is something you'll attack very well. Yes. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask, uh, what does like a training week kind of look like? You said two, three hours a day, five days a week. How much is like actual track work, gym work or like stretching? How much is like all that stuff? Yeah. So I like to do yoga every morning when I wake up. I think yoga is super important. Um, That's one of my sponsors is a hot yoga studio, which I love going to. And then on the days that I'm not training, I go to like a bigger yoga session. So technically I'm doing something to move my body every day. Um, But yeah, Sunday is an off day. Sunday is yoga day. And then Monday is speed. So that would be as a 400 meter runner, 100s to 150s. Um, and then doing that, focusing on technical work and big heavy lift afterwards. And then Tuesday we call tempo Tuesday. So this would be our biggest volume heavy day, um, where I'd run say 12 times 200 meters, but at about 35 seconds with limited rest. Whereas my personal best is, um, 26 seconds. So it's significantly slower than my, I'm not going all out in those. And then we lift again on Tuesdays. Uh, that one's mostly upper body. And then Wednesday is acceleration day. So those are shorter stuff, sled pulls, 
running with resistance, uh, block starts, and then also weights on Wednesday. So end of Wednesday, you're definitely feeling it in your body. You're pretty tired. But then Thursday is off day. And then Friday is your biggest um, day of the week in the sense that it's the most important. It's special endurance day. So that's the day um, that's the toughest. It would be, say, four to five times 300 meters all out 100% with five minutes rest. So that's your big lactic day. Um, super challenging mentally those days. Um, your body's hurting on after run one and you have like four to six more runs left um, of the day. So yeah, Fridays have always been tough. I usually, I'm always lying on the ground. I've never not lying on the ground on a Friday. I, I've only cried once, so that's pretty good in all my years. But, and I, I, I've probably only not completed like two workouts, which is pretty good. But yeah, Fridays definitely push me. And then Saturdays are your cross training days. So swimming, biking, and then also weights. Do you do, what other things do you do outside of, um, like the actual activities for your sport? Yeah. Besides I, like those ones you just mentioned. Yeah. Like I said, I love yoga, but, um, I love, love biking, um, my boyfriend's really into mountain biking. So although I do not mountain bike, I think that would, I know some one-armed people who do it and I don't know how that's absolutely incredible, but I just love, um, going for bike rides. Edmonton has the most beautiful trails. River Valley is amazing. So, and I also love, um, getting on my bike and biking to where I need to go. I, have really challenged myself to do that as much as possible this year and to just not start my car and drive somewhere just because it's a few minutes quicker to do that. So always biking to school, always biking to training. Um, when it snows here in about a week, I'm going to be pretty sad that I have to put my bike away. But yeah, it snowed in Calgary already. Yeah, I heard that. I saw that on a few people's uh, Instagram stories that it was snowing. So yeah, besides biking, um, I remember you tra- said you tried a triathlon once, right? I almost did. Oh, I have backed did. out every time for the triathlon. The first time it was, it was a mech try a try. So it was super short distances for this one. It was like 5k run, 10k bike and like 250 swim, 200. It was super short and it got canceled due to air quality. And I was so happy. I was so scared to do it. I hadn't trained because it's, it's so, so different training volume versus being a sprinter. My boyfriend and I about a month ago did a 10 K and that was my first ever 10 K. Like I'm not, I'm not training to do long distance running. Like Nick and I's training would be complete polar opposites. And right. Like most marathon runners can't go out there and run this crazy fast 100 meter time. Mm -hmm. So if you flip it, um, but I did, I really did enjoy the 10 K that I did. Um, it was pretty fast time. It was like 52 minutes, which for That's a sprinter. Good. And I also, though, like I got into this flow state, got this the runner's, runner's high, high that yeah. sprinters never get because we don't run long enough to get it. So that was cool. But I will, I'll do a try, a try. I'll do a triathlon one day. Yeah. Yeah. My wow. bikes did get stolen. Um, they actually, yeah, they both got stolen. Um, Cause it was custom, right? Too. It was yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. I had a really nice Cannondale. Um, but they both got stolen, but then got returned. It was just a bit of a sketchy situation. And then two weeks ago, my bike seat got stolen. And uh, I didn't realize until I sat on my bike and got a mm, pull up my butt. Impaled. But 
Um, yeah, bike theft everywhere is just crazy. So it's not just me. <laughs> Um, I was wondering when you started, because uh, I know for me, when I went from baseball, like a explosive sport, sprints, everything, trying to get into triathlon, endurance, and ultra eventually, I had like a very small work capacity at the start. And like with the coach I was with, Luke Way in uh, Kelowna, he's big on like training your work capacity. So the more you can do, the more you're able to do and like building that up. But that took me like years and years to be able to build a big base. So I wasn't getting injured doing these things. Mm. So I remember like trying to do a 10 K when I first started and feeling like, I don't know if people get through it without getting injured. Yes. Like I felt like I was always getting injured. And then it was just like building brick by brick up. Was there a big transition for you to like when you got into sprinting or with those shorter distances, did you feel like, um, just having like explosive muscle, uh, was, enough to like transition quickly or to take like a while to get used to that yeah I'd say my skill was enough to get me through the short sprinting aspects of workouts so acceleration days I was always fine I never found those challenging but oh even running like a 200 at the start was so so challenging and getting through Friday workouts were so tough. Like my level of fitness and workload that I was able to handle in my body was not great at all. And now when I look back and even if my coaches keep track of and execute the same workout that I did a year earlier, like my times are so much faster. I'm not begging for them to extend the rest that I'm on. So it's, yeah, it's crazy your level of fitness and how it improves. And it's, it's great, obviously. Um, even when I, so for tra- in the track world, our off season is always August. If things go to plan and competitions happen at a normal time. But so I get August off and I know that my first couple workouts back, I'm always so concerned because I feel like I've lost all this fitness and I don't think I'm going to be able to handle the workouts, but then it comes back so much quicker now and yeah, there's definitely been this big learning curve um, throughout the years. Because now, I think I've been doing track now for five years, which compared to other athletes, I'm 25. Um, they definitely have been doing the sport a lot longer than me. Um, so I still always say that I have a lot to learn. I haven't ran that many 400 meters compared to some other athletes. But every year that I come back, it's definitely getting easier and easier as my fitness gets better. And uh Thankfully, I haven't had really any injuries whatsoever. So I think um, because I got into the sport when I was older and I had that knowledge of proper recovery and putting physiotherapy and doing your physio exercises, not just going to physio, but doing the exercises and going to yoga and stretching out properly and doing a proper cool down. um, I was always really proactive about those things. Yeah, I know that makes a big difference and being yeah, proactive and not reactive once you have an injury. Yeah, absolutely. And taking time off sucks. Yeah, Especially when you want to be doing it. But um, I know, or I'm wondering, do you have, you have teammates, obviously, that you train with? Um, have you been training with people that are on Team Canada uh, that aren't in the Paralympics? Um, I think you mentioned that to me one time. Yeah. So I actually just started back at school. So I have an undergrad from uh, Grant McEwen in business uh, that I graduated from three years ago. And I get good support through Team Canada for my schooling. So I wanted to go back to school. 
And also I wanted to be a University of Alberta athlete. So I am the first ever amputee on the varsity team, which is really exciting. Yeah. And so I'm a panda. um, And it's amazing. I like, it's so much fun. I just love being on the team. And for the first time in my life, starting last month in September, this is the first time I've ever had training partners. And they are all able-bodied University of Alberta athletes. And they... About half of them. So there's probably, there's me and about four other girls in my training group. So although I'm a 400 meter athlete in university sports in Canada, the distances are different indoors. So indoors, I have to run a 300 meter. So our training group is 300 meter girls. And there's a few that are significantly faster than me. And then there's also some that are right there with me for the same times. And um, everybody is beneficial to me, but those ones... Um, that are at the same times as me, those are the ones who are really great to come those tough training sessions because you take turns leading the pack. And when the set rest is almost over, they're the ones that are making you stand up and get to the start line to do your next rep. So I'm really, really thankful to have them. And it's only been two months now that I've been training with them, but I already see it really positively impacting my training and I'm really excited for this year and to be a Panda. I have new coaches, uh, Wes and Christy. They're the, Wes is the head coach of the University of Alberta team. So he takes it really seriously. Um, he's excited to coach a high performance athlete. And yeah, so, so far that's all been great. And in regards to your question, Nick, about the para-athletes, I train with them at Team Canada training camps. We always have a handful of those throughout the year. I have a good friend, Marissa Papa Constantino. She is a leg amputee and she runs 100 and 200. She got bronze at the Tokyo Paralympics and her and I run similar times. Um, She's more sprinter based than me. She doesn't do as much volume. She would never go out there and run like a 400 like myself. Um, They don't have it for her classification. But doing work with her at training camps is awesome. And definitely being surrounded by other para-athletes. We're always such a diverse group. Blind, um, different muscle and spinal cord injuries, um, amputees, everything. You get just such a crazy diverse mix of people. So seeing them out on the track and working hard and overcoming their challenging's challenges is always uh, really motivating. Yeah, I must see some crazy stories. Well, yeah, they are. all, especially when I've gone to, because we usually train in the U.S. because it's warm, and mm-hmm. you know, to be on an outdoor track and be doing warm weather training camps. Americans have the craziest, craziest stories about how they acquired their disability. It's insane. Yeah. Yeah. How does that work? Because I know, like, NCAA, you have certain um years of eligibility and stuff and like once you become a professional athlete you can't go back and compete how's that work what's the like division calgary or, or uh can oh, west and Edmonton then it's can west sorry what kind of division do you mean do like you compete in at the u of a yeah so we're part of can west oh, yeah. um, so like u of a saskatchewan calgary uh university of victoria trinity western um, all those schools, Winnipeg and 
Yeah, so track doesn't have an age cap. So other sports do. Football, um, 25 years old is your cap. So I'm 25 now, So, but we don't have that cap. Um, is we, that to get in or uh, the, if, once you're in and hit that age, you cap out? Uh, if you... Are com- you can't compete older okay. than 25. Yeah, for like football. Um, but so we uh, in Canada get five years of eligibility and I never used any um, during my previous degree. So I I could use five years of eligibility. I could be 30 years old and competing on the track team. Um, but I'm doing an after degree that's going to take me three years. So I'll probably just compete on the team for two to three years. Okay. Yeah. But does it affect it? Um, being a professional athlete coming back, like having sponsored, no, no, because okay. no. there's, yeah, there's people um, like bobsled athletes are really, really good sprinters, especially mm-hmm. in the 60 meter, which is the distance indoor. So yeah, you'll have people who competed, won a medal at Beijing, um, Pyeongchang, and then they'll come and just bust out a gold for their university. So That's pretty crazy. yeah, no rules um, that because I've been to world a world championship. Um, or even if I went to the Paralympics, um, which I hope to do soon, I could still compete. Okay. Yeah. So not like actual numbers, but do your sponsors monetarily, they monetarily help you out and, or is it just like uh, gear and supplies or like flights to places? How does that work? Yeah. Some are grants, so they will offer me money and then, but I have to say where the money is going and submit receipts mm. and all of that. Some, um, I'm carded through team Canada. So what we would say is a professional athlete. So I get a monthly salary, a monthly paycheck from, uh, team Canada. And that one is just to cover your living expenses. So that one is just money deposited into your account. And then, yeah, others are, I've got gift cards, um, definitely clothes, shoes, still trying to get a sponsorship for a like clothing and shoe brand. I it's my dream to be a New Balance's first para athlete, their first athlete with a disability. My friend Marissa, uh, with the leg amputation, she was Nike's first para uh, Canadian athlete. So I want to be that on the New Balance side. So we're still working on that, but yeah, it's kind of a mix: clothes, um, swag. Yeah, it's uh, it's great. It's Lots of athletes have agents, but I do it all myself, which being a full-time athlete or pardon me, a full-time student is a lot. So I've kind of stopped working so hard on marketing myself right now. Social media can be absolutely exhausting. I don't know how influencers do it. I wouldn't want that. I, the thing is, is that the thing I love and what I look forward to every day is just getting out to the track and running, doing the work, doing yeah. the work. And that's why I'm in this sport is to be the best athlete I can be and to run personal best. It's not to make an ad on my social media. So you kind of got to find that balance and it can be tough. Yeah. I found that for sure is being like vouching for yourself and trying to go out and find ways to fund these things, especially if you're working full time or student full time and then trying to pay for it on the side. Yeah. I know with my sponsor Coros for the watches, it was the same, like going out and trying to like, they're my goal to get because they had like the best battery life for the things I do. And mm-hmm. like, they were the ones I was using anyway. So I was I know, stoked it's nice to, when you already use the yeah, product. You don't have to like exactly. vouch for them pretending it's fake. It's just, mm-hmm. you're happy to use it. But 
I know it is hard to like go out and try and do all that and the social media stuff or like the same. I just like doing the work is like the easy part, right? Yeah. It's like a lot of the expeditions I do, the hardest part's getting to the start. There's so many logistics. Like once it starts, almost a like a breath, like all yeah. right, here we go. Just like we're finally here. Yeah, just yeah. just let your mind go and just do it. So, totally. Um, no, that's cool. You have so many people supporting you and, uh, yeah. yeah, you gotta, you gotta market yourself, right? Like you have to diversify yourself and how, what's your competitive advantage? How do you differ yourself from the person standing next to you? I mean, I have a great story. I have one arm, but also, yeah, you just can't be embarrassed to ask for things. People want to support you, especially local companies. I mean, they're great. Uh, you say you're a local athlete from Edmonton, even Canada, and people are more than happy to fuel your journey and people love athletes. So it's yeah, good. it's just a lot of reaching out and it doesn't hurt to ask, right? You never yeah, know. it never hurts to ask. I mean, I get rejected all the time. Um, I never hear back from people sometimes and, but sometimes I do. And then those are the ones that are the best, but you got to shoot your shot. Yeah. And I know like once you do land on like the ads you do for the save on foods when mm-hmm. you have the the other arm coming in when you're cooking. Yes, the cooking, uh, yeah. Those are hilarious, so. Yeah, you can still um, show your brand through yeah. the ads if you try. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and then it doesn't feel like an ad as much. Exactly, yeah. yeah. For sure. Um, so what's your season like coming up? Yeah, so training we're going right to do indoors, of course, since I'm a panda now, University of Alberta athlete. So that would be a 300 meter. And then also I would love, love, love to be on the relay team four by 400 meter relay because in the Paralympics we don't have a four by 400 relay it doesn't exist so it'd be my only ever shot at running a relay so I would love to earn a spot on that team I think I have a good shot so I just gotta put in the work and show that I'm capable of it and so for us we'll start competing in January and then go through to end of March so a good three months of busy competing um, every weekend. And then I just have to make sure I stay injury free because this summer coming up is world championships and it's in Paris. It's in July, 2023 it'll be. And I missed out on Tokyo. I had a really, really good season that year in 2021. Uh, The Paralympics were postponed one year because of COVID. They were supposed to be 2020, got pushed to 2021. And I ran, I I think it was seven personal bests that year. That was the first time I ever broke sub 60 in the 400. I went from running 63.34 seconds to running 59.95. And yeah, I knocked off like almost 3.5 seconds off, which is crazy. But I still didn't make Tokyo. I was super disappointed, but it fueled me to work that much harder. So I definitely want to go to Worlds and just like, blow everyone out of the water and get on the podium. That was my absolute goal. Right now, being ranked third in the world, I have a shot. And being that I've only been running the 400 for a couple of years, I haven't plateaued yet, which is working on my side. Every time I get out there and run, I run a personal best or I run pretty close to. And I am excited to see what 2023 holds for me. I think having this new coach and having training partners is definitely going to show. And I'm excited. So I'll just be training and competing all throughout um, up until probably end of July. I want to get in some other races in Europe as well, get some experience on the international stage. 
And then we have Pan American Games, which are in November, which is a super awful time for track and field athletes to compete. That's our base season. We're not even in spikes usually at that point. So we'll see if Team Canada sends a team to Pan American Games. I want them to just because I think it's a great opportunity for me again to reach the podium. So I want to go and earn that medal for Canada. But if we don't send a team, I mean, it's out of my control. And then after that, we've got Paralympics, which are also in Paris. So back-to-back years in Paris. And yeah, I'm excited to make my Paralympic debut then, which will only be like two and a half years away now at this point. Nice. Yeah. Um, I was wondering in the future, do you plan? Because I know like I was trying to think of what year it was, but I remember seeing um, – Oscar Pistorius, the double leg amputee, ran in like the non Paralympics. Yeah. Is competing in the Olympics something that you're interested in? Uh, it is, but I'm pretty far off. So I run 59.13 seconds, but the best able bodied athletes in the world are running 50 seconds. So because of my arm, I am obviously at a disadvantage. So I am, I'm too slow, honestly, to compete at the Olympics and that's okay. Um, I would much rather win a gold at the Paralympics. That would be the dream. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> um, so what, what does a diet look like for you? Yeah, I kind of eat whatever I want because I'm working out so much. So I'm never worried about eating too much. Um, I just make sure that I'm getting tons and tons of protein and carbs. I find that that's protein, especially is the only thing that ever makes me feel full. And when I'm hungry, I eat, I eat three big meals a day and then plus lots of snacks. And yeah, I think I've always, my mom raised me with saying that everything in moderation, and that's what I try to live by. So if I want a treat, I'm going to give myself a treat and I remind myself not to feel bad about it but in saying that I do eat incredibly healthy lots of vegetables and fruit um vitamins just to make sure that if I'm lacking anything in my diet I'm getting it um all the important vitamins and minerals and yeah I love food it's uh makes me happy and now living with my boyfriend we enjoy cooking together and we've made this like a thing for us to do together and date nights is making nice big meals Especially being sponsored by Save on Foods, I guess. Yeah. Yes, that one helps a lot. Groceries are very expensive right now. So oh, yeah. it's a privilege for me to be able to f- be able to buy such good quality, uh, healthy food. Yeah, of course. Um, what about uh, your off-season? What do you usually get up to? Just travel, chill, or do you keep training some, stay active? Yeah, I stay active in the sense that I'm still cycling and doing yoga. Cycling's great because it's non-impact, and you're also using different muscles than you do when you're sprinting. So I find that cycling doesn't take away from my ability to come back in September and be ready to go. But I definitely like to take full, full advantage of my off-season whenever I have a uh, time off. So this year I went to Europe. I did a road trip to Vancouver Island. I love traveling, but I love traveling when you can do it through track, of course. Mm. Um, Going to Peru, going to Dubai, going to Europe for track is always great, but it's not a holiday, right? You're focusing on training. You're spending a lot of time in the hotel room, all of that. So 
being able to take advantage of uh, off season, I got sponsored by Airbnb this year. Nice. So they have paid for a lot of accommodations, which is amazing. And yeah, that's kind of what I get up to in the off season. And I think now being in school, um, come off season, I'm going to be just that much ready to give myself a true break and go do some fun things while I'm in my mid twenties and making the most of it. Yeah. Awesome. How long are you planning to try and do a professional career, like compete? Yeah. So they say, generally speaking, you're as a female, you reach your plateau when you are 27, 28 years old. But I want to push that because I got into the sport so old. I was uh, 19 or 20. I think I just turned 20 when I got involved in track. So I want to go through for two more Paralympic cycles. So Paris 2024 and then LA 2028. And how old would I be in 2028? I'd be old enough to retire. So after that, I would be done. And then I want to get into cycling. Um, I love cardio. I crave it. I Some days with sprinting, like I wish I could run more, um, but it's just not beneficial for me in the 400 meter, but, um, biking all the time has like definitely given me this love and passion for cycling. So I, uh, want to get into that. I don't know what that looks like if it would be indoor velodrome cycling or road cycling or what, but, and maybe I wouldn't even be good at it. I mean, I've never tried cycling for speed and to do it fast, but maybe I would just do it fun. And I mean, I'm in school now for education, so want to be a teacher one day as well. But I love, love being a professional athlete. I mean, you do too, Nick. Oh, yeah. You like, I mean, there's, I think we're just so fortunate to be able to wake up and do what we love every day. It's fun. It makes us love life and we're not going to an office. I know some people obviously have to, but that I'm not sitting in an office eight to four every day and that I get to go out and run and that's my job mm-hmm. is pretty crazy. So if I can make that go on for as long as possible, why wouldn't I? Yeah, exactly. Well, I know like, especially for me, when I went, started all this cardio stuff, I know I was like, baseball is my identity for so long. And after having all the concussion issues and I couldn't play the way I want to, it wasn't fair for me to keep playing on the team or myself. So I still want to compete, but I tried to find a less impact sport. So when I found like endurance, that's why I was a lot of like anxiety, depression, like just not feeling great. But like the best prescription is that like prolonged repetition. Oh yeah. You just get like lost in it and you can think about so much other stuff, but it, it, uh, yeah, just working towards a goal, like having a goal that you may be, see somebody who like, how can a person run for three days straight? Like, and I'm a person who feels like they get injured on a 10 K. Right. And then having like that as a goal. And at least like I got asked a lot of times is like, how do you do, like, how do you do that? It's or so long or whatever. It's like, well, first thing I'd say is like, have you tried? If you haven't tried, you don't have a starting point. Right. Fair. So if you have like a starting point and then it's just like stacking piece by piece and it's just like filling in the middle basically. Totally. So I've found that endurance is like, I vouch for that over everything. Like it's yeah, changed I mean, my it's life the for happiest sure. Version of yourself. Like I, I all area of my areas of my life benefit because of track. I prioritize sleep. I eat healthier. I surround myself with positive influences for people. And 
I, it makes me feel good. Like I, every day when I leave a training session, I feel so accomplished. I look in the mirror every day and I love how I look. I love my body. It, I truly can't imagine eating poorly and sitting on a couch all night after working. I just, that's not the lifestyle I want. And it, yeah, this makes me the happiest, healthiest version of myself for sure. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, do you have any messages you like to say to other para-athletes or even young athletes? Yeah, I used it? to say when I got involved in this sport that I was doing it to inspire people and motivate people with a disability. But I've actually found through my years that it's often able-bodied people that actually are the ones making excuses for themselves for why they aren't out there chasing their dreams. And I mean, your dream, your goal doesn't have to be athletic. It can be anything. It can be just taking a risk with any of your passions, but able-bodied people are sometimes the ones who make the most excuses for themselves. So I, you just need to push yourself outside of your comfort zone. And my quote that I always live by is hard week, hard work beats talent when talent fails to work hard. And you need to put in the work and it's going to be tough, but making excuses for yourself, you're never going to get there. And there's been days on the track where I've felt defeated. I've been on the ground. I can't get up. I have in the middle of a workout told myself that I just need to quit because I'm not strong enough for this, but you need to push through that. And you do not know what your body's capable of until you try. Like you said, Nick, you need to try these things and that's when you're really going to find what you're good at. And that's when you will become like, like I said, the happiest, healthiest version of yourself. You just got to push yourself. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining me today. Um, episode one. Thank you. Um, did you have social media? Yeah, of course. Uh, people can follow me on Instagram. That's the main one I use. That one is at Amanda Rummery, R-U-M-M-E-R-Y. Thank you, Nick, awesome. for having me today. I was yeah. so excited to be your first guest. It was yeah. fun. Thank you. I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, just follow along. I'll be having more coming out. Hopefully, I'm trying to do weekly. So um, yeah, just subscribe and like and see you on the next one. Thanks, Peace. everyone. Keep your nose bad. <laughs>